0: Sambutas and not more arahato, some Sambutasa aparuta de sangamatasa satang. I've been on my sabbatical for over a year now, and uh, I must say I really enjoyed it. I appreciate all the support and encouragement that I received during this past year. And that's uh, to let go of all the duties and respons- sense of responsibility. And Obligations and uh, on and on like that for a whole year. And be able to do what, what you want, whatever you feel like doing. <coughs> so comparing that with the duties of senior monk, uh, teacher, avid, on and on like this over many years. Was, uh, well, even when you when you have when you're away, you're still thinking in terms of being responsible for all the other things that go on and teaching and guidance and making decisions. So the group of four that. <laughs> that took on those duties i uh, <laughs> uh, express my gratitude. Sometimes it takes, you know, one has to get away from things to really appreciate what you have. <laughs> so uh, I found the uh, first uh, when Venerable Panya Thar and I went to Tibet. That was, of course, the fulfillment of of, a, of my longing to uh, go on pilgrimage to Mount Kailash. And as you all know, or many of you know, I went, tried the first time in 1998, only to be kicked out of Tibet by the Chinese. Who have this aversion to Buddhist monks. And the second time we actually made it, uh, crossed the border, and succeeded in our pilgrimage around this holy mountain. Then spending the Vasa here, but in retreat, and then the past six months in India. So this has been uh, a year both of adventure, um, some excitement, no romance. But also, it's, uh, I mean, this is my 37th year as a monk, so it's, uh, you know, in human terms, it's quite a long time. And so the uh, effect of those 37 years is very good. I, I'm pleased with the way I've lived my life. <laughs> The uh, monastic form and uh, its containment. I remember when I, I particularly chose a strict uh, type of mon- monastery to in Thailand and when I chose to stay with Thongpho Cha because I knew I needed boundaries for behavior. Uh, up to then, I I didn't didn't have any boundaries. So <coughs> when, you, when you're brought up with the attitude of freedom and, and uh, just follow your heart and, and uh, experience everything you can, which was the common, popular philosophy in the West Coast of the United States in the early 60s, and then find yourself in a Northeast Thailand monastery where they have all these vinaya rules and training rules and very orthodox system of way of looking at, at, uh, at monasticism. But it's what I chose because I know I needed, needed to learn how to obey somebody else, how to, how to uh, learn to live within boundaries and, and operate in a system that I didn't have all that much control over. I just couldn't pick and choose and manipulate it according to my particular views, but there's that sense of surrender or giving up my own particular views and opinions uh, and arrogance and conceit in order to conform to the, to the way they did it there in that monastery. in many ways, that was a simplification of life. Actually, when you're free to do whatever you want, life becomes very complicated. Uh, but when you uh, submit to, to to a system uh, like a tradition like Theravada Buddhism or Thai Forest Tradition, then it makes everything more simple because you, well, you don't have to make a lot of decisions. You just go along with it. It's all based on moral behavior and doing good, refraining from doing bad. So, even though one could get irritated or rebellious or, or angry about the limitation, because if you consider yourself somebody who's free and then limitations are put on you, you feel suffocated. You know, you feel t- there's a tendency to want to resist it. So these are the things we can observe as to what happens you know in the mind the convention itself is uh... you know is one that it is the way it is it's, there are Thai for a tradition there are a lot of buddhism like this so you, you begin to to recognize it <coughs> as a as a conventional form a vehicle you're not trying to to uh... Say that it has to be, you know, a certain way. You're just recognizing that this particular convention and the way we have picked it up in Thailand through Po Cha, it's like this. And then, so you you know what you're getting into. You have a sense of of uh, this is this is a vehicle I'm choosing, <coughs> and then you can. Uh, Commit yourself to that vehicle and see what happens. And of course, the, the important is uh, to stay in it. So don't get out of it <laughs> until you get to the destination, which in our terms is Nibbana. So, picking that up in uh, uh, traveling in India for six months or going to Tibet. With, uh, interesting to see uh, how when you're when you're outside a monastery you're in a in a different country different culture with people uh, you don't know uh, the the uh, attention tends to be so well directed inward you know through the training you know rather than outward you're you're not li- you're not particularly concerned about the differences, or the the standard of living, or the uh, culture, or the you know the uh, systems of etiquette in comparing them with with the ones you have here at Amravati or in England. But you're using the situation to observe what goes on inside yourself. Well, I'm a A great indophile so this to me I have a great love of Indian civilization so India's a country I've always you know every opportunity uh, that I get I go there (laughs) Uh, in fact I studied and when I was in uh, graduate school studied I was have an MA in Indian culture Civilization. The thing I like about India so much is that, uh, I mean, it's just a very interesting, alive place. And uh, you feel, you know, that it's, uh, its culture is based on a lot of wisdom principles. So there is this kind of receptivity to life. In India, it seems I think chaotic at first. If you're if you're from uh, west and nicely ordered countries like England or Switzerland or places like this, then then I think the first reaction is one of of maybe feeling uh, you know confused because it seems so disordered and chaotic, so different from say that what we what we are maybe used to in here in western europe but myself having lived in asian countries for many years and and liking that atmosphere this i remember in thailand uh, when they, when they'd have a big kind of Wesak festival day at wat Bapong, uh Chah's monastery and i remember when i first came there and then, and then they'd ha- they'd be all these people, thousands of people coming to this we day and I just felt so confused by all the all the people and the way they did things There didn 't seem to be any organization uh, things just seemed to go on and and i didn 't know you know there weren't a lot of directives and orders and signs around and I just kind of fumbled through it some way, feeling quite uh, confused and disturbed by it. But then it, I found that if I stopped just getting, following negative reactions, then I would actually begin to appreciate it. That actually within that seeming confusion, there people knew what they were doing. Things, the food would get served on time. Everything would would seem to function in a more flowing way rather than uh, the way we tend to do things in Europe, which are having to organize and uh, control everything. In the sense that we have to write it out on paper and notices and and have everybody, assign duties to everybody and, and organize it months ahead of time in order to feel at ease with it. <coughs> well, India, it's something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh it's uh if it feels it f- it's disorganized But underlying that it is f- things happen the b- things the trains are on time usually and uh, buses and the things get done and and the country runs and you hear all kinds of stories about the corruption or whatever but generally speaking in terms of what's necessary i, I didn't experience any unpleasant uh, Unbearable situations. Also, being a monk in India is uh, very nice. In fact, as soon as we landed uh, at the Bombay airport, I felt this uh, sense of like being at ease you know, you're in a place where they respect what you're doing. And you don't have to tell them, they just know because you're wearing robes and have a shaven head. So uh, it's a yeah. sense of just uh, I belong here. Uh, so you know they in India usually the sadhus or the samanas there they don't wear this color. Usually they're kind of orange robes, saffron colors and uh, but they still seem to get the point. And the tell them, they ask what we are, say Buddhist monk and, and Buddhism is, is uh, I don't quite know how they, they think about Buddhism these days in India uh, because there's so many, there's millions of uh, from the uh, untouchable castes that have converted to Buddhism through the encouragement of Dr. Ambedkar who, who died in uh, 1956 so then there's a, a, lot of, a, a lot of anger towards Buddhists because of a, a lot of that is quite political, and uh, there's a lot of anger among the untouchable castes towards the other ones, justified, because they've been treated so abominably. And yet, uh, and yet Buddhism is, is not a, a religion to encourage anger or, or divisiveness. And yet you find that just by converting by conversion and uh, yeah. mass conversion that somehow the whole essence of the Buddha's teaching seems to be uh, forgotten, yeah. and uh, so you you get a lot of a lot of it is involved with political attitudes and opportunities. But and within that movement, there are a lot of good things too. So it's not not to dismiss that, but to but also to to feel rather good that that these people are are uh, finding some pride, some sense of self-respect in their identity as Buddhists. As one uh, person told me, one person, the new Buddhist, told me, he said, "Well, when you think of yourself as untouchable, you you think of yourself as kind of dirty and." Inferior, and not very good. But he said, "When you think of yourself as," when I think of myself as a Buddhist, he says, that "I feel good about myself." Then, uh, then I met me in Delhi, where I spent about a month. The, I'd meet uh, Buddhists who were more into the meditation scene from the middle classes, and there seems to be quite a bit of interest in uh, Buddhist meditation in, in Delhi. In this time in India I avoided the Buddhist places because being a sabbatical uh, I thought if I went to the Buddhist holy places and then, then uh, I'm fairly well known. So then they start asking me to do things and uh, put pressure on me. To teach or give talks and so forth. So I thought, oh, I'm going to, I would like to travel incognito. And so I wore my dark glasses and went from ba- Bombay down to Goa and spent uh, two weeks on uh, the most beautiful beach, just relaxing. Um, um, at the seaside, haven't done that for years and years. <laughs> and uh, one, of, I think, one of the most beautiful beaches I've ever seen. Uh, I've never seen such a beautiful beach anywhere. It was perfect. And you could go into the water, and it was warm and clean, and and the beach stretched out for miles of of nice sand and by and of course there were palm trees and just the perfect uh, tropical holiday setting. And uh, Daniel, the layman that invited us, uh, he rented the house and we had uh, quite a nice house near the beach and so was about two weeks we spent just in this idyllic place. And then went on to uh, uh Kerala to uh Cochin Fort Cochin, and so uh, they're going south uh the Buddhist world is not particularly uh, prevalent there, uh, but every once in a while I meet somebody that would recognize me <laughs> and uh then we went to an ashram in uh, in Kerala by this uh, a female saint, Amaji. And there, it's interesting going to one of these these ashrams where they, the the um, they have an enlightened saint. She's one of these people that, when I was a child, was somehow, you know, had had these very this sense of the divine which seemed to make her a little bit odd. She's from a from rather poor area uh, and from just a village. She's not, you know, from just a village family, poor village family. So her parents thought she was just crazy. People at first saw her just uh, kind of demented I guess because she'd have fits where she'd pass out she always had this sense of the divine and divine union and so she, when, when we first arrived she was away so we stayed at the ashram it was quite big and she's become very famous throughout India so so there were and all over the world she comes to England I think sometimes and uh, there were a lot of Westerners there at this ashram thousands thousands of people and um everybody was waiting for the day when Amaji would come and interesting the guru guru type of situation everybody's talking about mother and ama and is the an Indian word for mother so and then they tell you all the miracles and fantastic things she does and so you get hear all this stuff and uh, of course me being uh, on the on a, a Buddhist you know I'm not I'm not a cynic but but it's a different style isn't it, the way we we practice and uh, the, the bhakti style or the, the guru worship is quite uh, you know it's very different from the way uh, from our style of practice and then when she did come, of course, uh, she's just a tiny little woman, and <laughs> but she did certainly have great presence and and, great, and really a very joyful-looking person. And I was very impressed to see such a lovely human being, you know, to be in the presence of someone that... Uh, one felt deserved that kind of respect, mm. and she had been that way since childhood. You know, so that it's uh, interesting in India you meet these people who uh, somehow have, you know, from from their early childhood they've been blessed in that way. They're in touch with the divine. The and uh, they operate within the, you know, in the world as a kind of divine as representatives or encouraging all of us in that direction. So I li- I read some of the books and teachings. It was a very good teaching actually, and it is about mindfulness. You know, it's not worshiping her as a as a person or a, a personality or as a woman or anything else, but <coughs> it's a way of reaching that, recognizing that divinity within yourself. The deathless reality that pervades everything which we don't notice. And we look for it in somebody else. We we might see her, Amaji has it, but then, so then we're, we're looking out at somebody else uh, to represent the the divine for us then the teaching is to look inward you know you, to learn to appreciate the, the divinity in others but not to to attach to that person but to encourage us to recognize that reality within our own conscious experience and so then from there we went on to this very ancient city in uh, Tamil Nadu, Madurai, and there they have a um, very old uh, Shivite temple. Or it's called Minakshi Temple. They worship a goddess called Minakshi. And so, in, in Hinduism, there's all these different forms of Shiva and Vishnu and goddesses and and gods and, and all from, from rather beautiful angelic forms to demonic forms, warrior forms, kingly forms, queenly forms, warrior goddesses, uh, demonic mothers, the whole thing. <laughs> they've got a whole gamut of, of possibilities and, uh, that are deified within the, the system. And so, Minakshi is, a, I think, a form of Parvati, who is the, the consort of the Lord Shiva. And it's very interesting, in the south, you, there was never, the temples, Hinduism was never challenged or destroyed by Islam. So, you know, the uh, temples there, the Hindu temples there, are quite old and huge complexes, quite impressive buildings. Uh, and in, and also in Madurai, is where the great uh, Hindu sage Sri Ramana Maharishi was first awakened. was in in a in a house uh, near the Manacheri Temple in Madurai. When he was only a a schoolboy, he had uh, an experience in which he awakened to the truth, and then from there he went on to walk, to or left Madurai and, and went to uh, the town of Tiruvannamalai, where the, uh, this famous mountain Arunachala is, and there he spent I think 20, 30 years in silence on this mountain, not speaking to anybody. And now this huge, and he died in 1950, but the ashram is there, and it's uh, we spent a week in this in this ashram, but we could also meditate in this uh, in this house of that Ramana had his first awakening. That's been turned into a kind of small little ashram where you can go in the morning and meditate or in the evening. It's open all day, and, it, and it's a quiet, peaceful place. You go in the Manoji Temple. And and it's you know uh, an amazing situation. The the art there, the Davidian style of sculpture is uh, is is really impressive. I saw some of the most beautiful uh, sculptures of Shiva and the Nataraj and 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 uh, and so forth there in in Madurai. And then they have these ceremonies. There was a whole group of, of uh, this uh, this was in uh, December. The, uh, there seemed to be this group of men who were from all over India who were, they were wearing black uh, dhotis. And they were bare chested and they wore kind of mala beads. And they looked kind of wild. They were barefoot. And then they, they had been long lines of them and they'd go in their temple and, and uh, they were going on a pilgrimage to some sacred place in Kerala and they had to visit all these different uh, temples or holy places uh, and before they finally reach this one, one monastery, one ashram in the mountains and when they do th- all this on uh, with bare feet and men of all ages Sometimes boys, children, uh, boys, and two quite elderly men, engaged in this worship. And inside the temple, there is, is, is this continuous kind of puja, and uh, you hear music, and drums, and and the, this uh, um, worship was well, very powerful when you're in these these very old buildings and. And this uh, devotion, this bhakti devotion is going on. And it's very impressive, especially, I rather like that anyway, because you can see how, how uh, materialistic life has become in the West, and how empty it all is, and meaningless, and people involved with, with all their stressful activities, uh, which are so shallow. And then you go into these ashrams or these temples where people, you know, they're, they're worshiping the divine and there's a kind of total kind of involvement with it in a very beautiful way. At one time, I would have put this all down as superstition in the arrogance of my youth, reading reading it only in a very kind of uh, American uh, biased way. But now I would, I, I quite, I quite love that feeling of devotion to the divine uh, because you realize that, that that's something that leads you towards a profundity, a, a, a purpose a, a beauty that that enlivens us you know we're not just worried about whether our computer works or, or uh, our particular relationships and and the way that that so much modern life tends to, to be obsessed with seemingly insignificant, trivial experiences that that cause us endless stress, depression, and, and unhappiness. So, in the bhakta system, there is a, a commitment, isn't there, to uh, to puja, to devotion, to pilgrimage this is very much evident still all over India, yes. the country that has a, such a strong religious uh, atmosphere. So then uh, from Madurai we went to uh, Catholic ashram in Tamil Nadu near Trichy and uh, Father B Griffith who was uh, he, he died a few years ago, but he was uh, he's a Benedictine monk who lived at the one in uh, his english what do you call that? thatwich Prinish abbey and uh, and anyway this this particular order have have uh, have uh, com- kind of combined hindu Rituals with with Catholic with Catholic ones, so you chant the Gayatri mantra. I went to to mass every morning, first time since I was about eighteen years old. <laughs> uh, went to the Catholic mass every morning, uh, just for for the chanting, and uh, they they chant. There's a lot of uh, they've taken from Hinduism. So it's, it's quite quite a nice marriage of Hinduism and Hindu rituals with with Roman Catholic uh, uh, with Roman Catholicism. And there, after Madurai, which is a rather noisy and busy place, uh, they, this Shantivaram was in the countryside, very peaceful. They gave we each had our own kuti, and uh, it was a very quiet. Uh, place for solitude in in a quite beautiful forest. Then from there, we went to... um, Sri Ramana Ashram. Mm -hmm. And I think many of us who are Buddhists, really respect Sri Ramana Maharishi's teaching, because it is a, it's is—it's based on a universal realization. It's not, you know, even though it's a, a Shivite teaching, it's its very much its very much similar to Buddhism. The whole point is awareness, awakeness, presence here and now. Teachings are always pointing at the present. And uh, then the... They have, uh, you know, the, the room where Sri Ramana lived and, and when he, he passed away in 1950, but the ashram still seems to thrive and it has very good atmosphere in it. And then this holy mountain, it's built right at the foot of this holy mountain, Arunachala, which you can circumambulate or climb up to the top, which re- I did both. And there I met uh, Sister jitindriya Sister Bode, uh Adrienne, and uh, Laurence McKenzie. So there we were, uh, and 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 soon the, the first first day when we arrived in Tiruvannamalai, the town where this ashram is, we, the the. Um, we, we arrived in time, we went by bus and we had to uh, we had to find a place to eat or have some food before noon. So we uh, went into this uh, place where they were serving food and there was a uh, Swiss man sitting there. The table comes up and he says, are you Ajahn Sumaito? <laughs> And <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and then I went into, uh, after the meal, we went into the ashram itself and was walking up past the, the main salon. This voice comes, Ajahn A Ajahn Samato And there was a friend of mine from California, Ryan Shaw. And then there were two others that day that recognized me. So I thought, no, I'm, you know, obviously, people that practice Vipassana in the West, uh, in America or Britain, seem to also like to go to Sri Ramana Ashram. Because I find this a compatible kind of uh, teaching to our own. I think that when you see pictures of Sri Ramana maharaja you can't help but love him, I mean he's got the most saintly looking appearance, He almost doesn't wear hardly anything except the little cloth ar- ar- around his groin but he he uh, has a beautiful face and uh, the teaching is excellent you know, this awareness waking up, looking inward it's all the, the same thing really So then, from there we went to uh, where did we go after that? Uh, Mahabalipuram, which is uh, famous, has a famous temple by the sea. It's also a kind of resort town, and uh, we went to Chidambaram, a famous a it's a holy city in the south where they're having a big uh, Shiva festival so it's another it a, it's it's the place for this Nataraj image they have famous, uh, the famous the Shiva in the circle of fire dancing so and in this temple this Shiva temple you know m- many times uh, in Hindu temples they won't let Buddhists or non-Hindus into certain of the inner sanctums. You know, so there were signs in the Minakshi temple saying, no Buddhists that. Ala- no if you're non-Hindu, if you're not a Hindu, you can't go in. So, so Jayanto and I tried to argue the point, that, well you Hindus think Buddhists are, are Hindus too, so we can go in. <laughs> And one time they did let us in; we convinced them. Other times they did—they we couldn't. But in the Shiva temple in Chidambaram, they had—they uh, invited us. We were, it's a temple where I said, "Well, aren't we? You know, we're Buddhist monks; we're not Hindus." And and, uh, the, and it was a Brahmin priest that had come to greet us, and he said, uh, "The Lord Shiva," he said, "If he doesn't." want you in the temple, he'll, he'll throw you out. He won't let you in. So we got in, obviously, we, he wanted us. So we went in and, they, and participated in this festival which lasted quite a few days where they take this uh, famous image, very old image of the Nataraj outside the temple, and they do this twice a year. They have these huge kind of uh, wagons very highly carved ornate wagons with huge wooden wheels and big thick ropes and and they're very high, like big juggernauts and uh, they put the the Nataraj image on top of one of these, and they had several other carts too, and everybody participates pulling on these ropes and they circumambulate the temple in the in the city and it takes a whole day to to uh, drag this huge juggernaut uh, around the temple. And there were thousands, tens of thousands of people. I've never seen so many people have been in a situation where I was just totally kind of uh, squashed in, you know. So many people, I couldn't, could hardly move, you know. You couldn't fall over in such a situation. And it was kind of exciting because, uh, you know, everybody was, their attention was on this, this, uh, doing this, uh, pulling this car, this huge wagon around. And everybody was dressed up. And all the women were wearing uh, the most beautiful silk saris. And you stood in the temple and watched, you know, all these elegant Indian women in the most, Gorgeous silk saris, you know—it's like going to a fashion show. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sari is a garment that even an, an unattractive woman looks beautiful in. So, <laughs> so it, it was quite impressive to see of the elegance of this this particular style, and then, and then the uh, and and of course everybody was wearing their very best. Women wearing the best saris, and the men their their uh, clothes, these white kind of dhotis, and 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 this uh, all and standing for hours, just waiting. To, it took so much patience for them to to do anything, to move this image, and and uh, you're standing in this heat and waiting, 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 and things happen very slowly there, and and they they don't rush it. And Finally, you know, the, the image comes out of the sacred shrine, and everybody follows it out to these huge uh, carts, and then, then, and, and every time they they start pulling, and somebody offers something else, they stop, and mm-hmm. a whole ritual was going on. It took you know, the whole whole day and late into the evening. So participating in that. The next day, I was really <laughs> sick. <laughs> I think I caught some kind of—it uh, th- seemed like malaria. And I'd had malaria years ago in Thailand, but, but um, anyway, that night I was—I had these chills and and I was sweating, and and uh, malaria goes in cycles, you know. So you you have this y- these kind of And you feel just absolutely terrible and we were in this terrible hotel the only place we could stay in a really grotty hotel and so I just curled up on the bed and uh, and uh, took a couple of um, of aspirins and then uh, proceeded to just let nature do it take its course I didn't tell anyone till the next morning The next morning, Daniel and Janza decided we'd better get to some hospital, so we went to Pondicherry, uh, uh, which is is an old French colony, and went to a clinic there where they did a blood test, and uh, and of course there wasn't any malaria, but uh, they didn't know what it was. But I still wasn't getting any better, so eventually went to Madras, which they now call Chennai, to a very good hospital. They interned me in the hospital for about five days and uh, gave me what to call the solutions, the drip, and, and I, my condition began to improve. <coughs> We also spent some time in the uh, Theosophical society in Adyar. Adrian wa, wa, used to work there and uh, of course, I was very interested in it I've read a lot about of theosophy and Krishnamurti was discovered there and and uh, in my studies on indian civilization of course i'd I'd read some of Madame Blavatsky's books and colonel olcott and that whole thing was quite quite an interesting uh has a quite an interesting history and to go to Adya of course it's uh uh Chennai is a huge city now, and they have this beautiful area right on the sea uh which they protected so, and you have y- they don't allow anybody in you have to you know fortunately Adrian knew was well known there so we w- we actually were allowed to stay at this place. And um, there, that was, I gave a talk. The head of the this office society wanted me to give a talk on meditation, and I've been invited back to give a meditation retreat. <laughs> <laughs> the be beautiful place to give a give a meditation retreat. And from there, we went to Benares by train. So it was quite hot in the south. And and my constitution uh, is not good for heat, you know, and so I found it quite arduous, actually, physically living in such intense heat. But, and they were having a cold spell in the north. So we took the train from Madras to Benares, and the train was eight hours late arriving because of fog and cold. And when we arrived in Benares, it was so cold it was freezing, and of course, I was just wearing these thin robes, so we went to we went to uh, the Ghats, gotth was was one of the uh one of the last goths and where they have uh, some recommended hotels uh that sounded quite pleasant so we went there. As soon as we arrived in Asigat, uh, one of these auto rickshaw comes by and stops and somebody jumps out and says, Arjun Sumato. And it was Stephen Batchelor. Who <laughs> so he was as surprised to see me as I was to see him. And he was there with another man. They were they're doing a book on pilgrimage. A kind of. He was doing the photography, Stephen Batchelor. So we stayed in a um, the palace view, or something like that, in <laughs> on Asigat that night. And uh, eventually, we found the next day, we found a, a very nice place uh, near the main Ghat. You, you know that the, the Ghats stretch out for several miles on the Ganga. And, and, and Benares, is, I think, is one of the most fascinating cities in the world. Uh, it's very beautiful in its own way. because These ghats uh, they're so, th- you know, the steps that that go down to the to the Ganga River, and th- they have palaces. And oftentimes, in the old days, the maharajas would build a like a palace there, and then build these stone steps, and they're quite elegant. Some of the palaces are very elegant, and temples, and whole places. is this. Filled with these palaces and temples uh, for miles and when you look at it with your eyes, it's just something like out of uh, fantasy world it's so unbelievable <laughs> and then life on the Ghats is is where a Buddhist monk is something really worth looking at because it's where you can see everything happening right in front of your face they have two burning ghats where they burn uh, cremate the bodies, so you can actually go and observe and they, they don't have crematoriums they they b- burn the bodies on pyres of wood, so you can actually see the whole process of cremation taking place and then when people get married there they go the bride and groom go to the Ganga river and pay respect to it, and so you see a lot of brides wearing, they wear red, red and gold and the grooms are wearing the kind of elegant turban and he has a, a kind of scarf or a cloth and she's tied to it and then she's walking behind <laughs> <laughs> and they go down to the river and the whole family is there and then uh, so it's marriage and then um, then all this religious life takes place there. There's so many pujas, and sadhus, and um, sannyasis, and priests, and uh, of all varieties. And some of the sadhus, uh, you know, you know, the way what they wear or don't wear, it's unbelievable. And uh, so you see everything from naked ones to to ones with dreadlocks, uh, shaven heads, uh, turbans, saffron colors, and and all kinds of of gear they w- they they have. And some are, uh, look like they're a bit demented. You know, one had turban wound up very high, and one was even carrying a silver vase on top of his head with flowers in it. <laughs> <laughs> So <laughs> you can see anything or you know, the Buddhist monk we go this vineian and we have to wear a robe like this and' it's so long and, and that in the in in the uh, Shivite orders, anyway, anything goes you know to from nudity to <coughs> to any kind of variation on the theme of robes But, it and and or oh they paint their faces they they have a lot of marks they wear on their faces and mala beads and carrying these uh, shivite forks and so forth so it's very colorful and alive and then there's the different uh, drum beats and things taking place all the time so any time of the day or night it's always an interesting place to just walk along the ghats. And one feels very much alive there because uh, people are very much involved in what they're doing. You know, life, even though many people are quite poor or, you know, you see poverty that you don't see here, but people are very much involved with their lives. And uh, there's, you know, something that, even though you see things that are quite depressing to your eye, you don't feel depressed by it. You know, when you see poverty, it, your eye feels, you know, you d- it's not pleasant to look at. But you don't feel depressed because there's something very much alive in India. And uh, people have a vitality. And a lot of it, I think, is connected to this devotion. that It seems to permeate everything. And Banara says, there's shrines everywhere you look, tucked away in this niche or in this alley or this place. Or you can't go anywhere. You feel it's a really sacred city. That you can't. That the whole purpose of it is, is uh, this worship of this beautiful river. In many ways, it can be quite repulsive because they they um, they believe that you know, like like a, a woman who's pregnant who dies when she's pregnant, they can't cremate her. So they. Th- Throw the corpse into the river. We actually saw one. There was a pregnant woman rotting away in the Ga- Ganges River near our, near the Ghat where we were staying. <laughs> and, uh, and sadhus, monks, I, I told Gianto uh, if I died there, they'd just throw me in the river. That wouldn't be bad, right? It? <laughs> because it's a, a holy river, a sacred river, and it And, of course, to the Western eye, it it can be quite, that seems quite repulsive or thing to be doing. But in another way, when you contemplate it, it, it's like letting things take their natural course. There's an acceptance of the life, of old age, sickness, death, birth, and and, uh, life's changes. So, this sense of Earth taking back what it's given birth to. So we found a very nice place to live in which uh, we uh, um, because Daniel had to return to England, we we were staying in this society where uh, they provided the food. So uh, we didn't have to worry about food at all during our two months there. Every day the meal was provided for us and uh, it was quite a relaxed time. We went to Saranath once. We took uh, a family There's a, uh, we met this woman who's uh, a widow Indian woman who lives out on the ghats, and she has four children and she just sells soap and, and uh, betel nut things like that and uh, her husband died, and the she was thrown out of her house. So she just lives on these uh, on Arthigat. So, so uh, th- by this time, the Danish uh, Danish friend Lars, uh, Sujo's friend, was there studying sitar. So, so uh, Lars looked after us, and this was Lars was looking after this widow. So. We'd take them on excursions. We took them, the widow and her four children, to Saranath one day. And uh, then we, uh, we'd take them out in the boat on the on the Ganga. You can go up and down, uh, on the ga- out in the river, and getting to know this 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 woman, kind of courageous woman, who is. Uh, the one son, the eldest son's fifteen. The next one's about twelve, and then a daughter of seven and another daughter of four, and she's manages somehow or other. And this was during the cold time too. And Lars had purchased warm clothing for them and shoes and things like this. So he took quite an interest in this in this widow with her four children during our time in Benares. Uh, and when we were in, in Sarnath, we met uh, Shantum Sait, who's quite well known, uh, he conducts tours uh, for Buddhists, to the Buddhist holy places. And so he, and that's where I met Eloise, was in, uh <laughs> in Sarnath, and uh, so Shantum invited us to meet him in New Delhi. So there we, uh, <coughs> on the 18th of March, we left with Lars and went to New Delhi. Uh, and then um, I have uh, one of my old friends, 40 years ago, I was in the Peace Corps. Uh, I was in Peace Corps training in Hawaii. Uh, and I met this young man, Robert Schmidt, uh, who was in the same group, and we were trained to go to Saba and Sarawak on the island of Borneo. So uh, we went to Saba, and uh, we got to know each other quite well. We went climbed Mount Kinabalu during that time, and now he's uh, working in the U.S. Embassy, as a cultural attaché. So he had this lovely huge house in, in a very posh part of New Delhi, which he made available. And he was away at the time. He had to take leave. And this was just the beginning of the Iraq War. So we arrived in New Delhi just as the Americans arrived as they started invading Iraq from Kuwait. So Janto and I couldn't help but watch the Iraq War on television. <laughs> watched the whole thing, all twenty-one days. <laughs> and of course, feelings—many feelings—would certainly be stirred up by this, uh, because it was was a rather unique situation. Never, I've never watched television hardly ever, even when I was a layman. But in this thing, they had everything recorded with these embedded journalists and. <coughs> BBC and c n n and and uh, on and on like this uh, we'd keep uh, you know uh, fascinated with this pr- process of this this terrible war. None of us were sympathetic with it and because uh, you see the the you know the just the violence breeds violence, so shantam invited me to give a public talk and so I decided I would in uh, uh, the Indian, International Indian Center, which is a very nice place and I called the talk, we, we called it War and Peace and I just reflected on you know quite a few people came to it and and it just because this was in everybody's mind, this war, this Iraqi war, all over the world I think everybody was involved in it, in some way. So, just to, to see, you know, when you understand how your mind works, you can see how heedlessness, selfishness, create the conditions for war. As soon as you lose touch, forget your true nature, the oneness, then, then you are into this conflict, inevitable conflict, Uh, whether it's internal or external. So when we we identify attached to any condition whatsoever, we find ourselves in conflict with other things. Because you recognize that the division of the mind takes place through thinking. You know, when we have consciousness, which is actually unitive, and thinking is divisive. So when you think, you divide everything. Though so, you know we're we're the we we're, we're right and you're wrong. As soon as I start thinking I'm right and you're wrong, then there's a division in my in my mind. If I if I grasp that, then of course there's this tension created. Axis of evil, uh, Iraq, Saddam Hussein. Uh, all these, these perceptions that people grasp and then, then the mind is divided into taking sides. So you can witness this in your own conscious experience when you pay attention and observe. That thinking itself is this grasping of thought. Not thinking, nothing wrong with thinking, but the grasping, the identity uh, of to, to the thinking process. We lose that oneness that unity and everything is divided into two and and from that come the all the many many other conditions so in meditation isn't it, the aim to to recognize that oneness that you can only that's uh, only possible through awareness that's the only possible way isn't that you can't think of it you can't create it. it you can't conceive it every conception is another thought you've created so it's the this letting go this relinquishing uh, that is uh, developing the path the liberation from suffering so in the war of course the you, you get the the Americans who are full of self righteousness, liberating the Iraqis from the oppressive dictator by destroying their whole country, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, you know, full of uh, triumph and and of course propaganda. Everything you know, Saddam Hussein was he was you know no doubt one of the world's worst tyrants. Uh, I don't think anybody would dispute that, but still. Uh, the the way the warlike mind you know by pointing the finger the the enemy the evil forces are over there we 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 are on the side of right god is on our side and so that delusion you know was in f- full force in this iraqi war and uh, of course it was impressive to see the Americans and the British come in with all their military might and absolutely demolish a country within 20 days. And, uh, you know, to a country that was already in uh, a terrible condition and rather, you know, bound and helpless, uh, unable to contend with the the power of such uh, high technology. course, you see the you know the ones that get killed or maimed, and and, and the BBC or CNN, they they uh, wouldn't uh, they didn't show very much of this. But this this Arab station called Al Jazeera always showed the maimed and the the bloody corpses and and that. But that was usually shown to. Uh, in, in Arab countries, and I don't think they would allow that in the United States to be seen there, because this is this. You don't want people to see that. You 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 uh, you want people to see the the successes and the smart bombs that 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 reach their target, you know, and destroy the the. Uh the headquarters for the Secret Service or something like this. Those are the things you want to publicize. But the sense of human loss and terror, and the thing of people in Baghdad were absolutely terrified with this incessant bombardment for 20 days, uh, not knowing what's happening, and this incredible brutality. That took place in the name of liberation. But then, could it be otherwise? When you think of it, uh, one sees how difficult it is in one's own life, even as a Buddhist monk. You know, to to really see that reality, to know that reality the Dhamma, and to, to see the way of not dividing the mind, trusting in that way of awareness, and not, no longer trusting in, in all the uh, opinions, views, thoughts uh, that, that come up in my consciousness. So then, um, eventually, uh, Shantam invited Jantu and I uh, up to Dehradun. Uh I wanted to go and see Chandra Swami. Uh, Sister Peka spent some time there, and uh, Chandra Swami Udasin. So I didn't think I would be able to go there. Nothing was kind of themeing the available, and then Shantam Seth made this possible. He and his wife drove us up to uh, this place uh, where his wife's, uh, in, uh, wife's parents have a beautiful house. So we stayed in this, this lovely house in Dharadun. Went to visit a Tibetan uh, uh, Lama in nearby went to the Anandamai Ma Ashram, uh, went to see the Dune School, which is a famous boys' school. Uh, and I met years ago, there was a, a man that used to come here, Christopher Miller, who lived in Birkenstead, and he used to be a headmaster at this school. And he told me about the Dune School. So Shantam Sate was... Uh also had gone to this school. So the headmaster invited us and, and we had a tour of this famous school. And picture of Christopher Miller uh, is hanging in, in, the, in the row of, of headmasters. When we'd say to people, although we wanted to go to Swami's ashram, He's not very well-known, actually, in most of India. And, but there's another Chandraswamy who's a real rascal that is very famous. So in New Delhi, they say, w- we're going to see Chandraswamy. They, they look surprised, you know. I say, is there anything wrong with him? And then they tell me about, what a rascal, you know. What a, he had a terrible reputation and he's notorious. And so I said, "I don't think that I think there must be several, and they said, "Oh yeah, there's a lot of chandraswamis and so I was relieved to to know that <laughs> and so now, if you notice them uh they say chandraswami Udasin, Udasin kind of defines him and he and also I'd been very much interested in the uh in a group called Sant Mat, which are from the Punjab, and they're they're descended, I think, out of the Sufi and Sikh traditions. And so Robert Schmidt, my Peace Corps friend who's with the American Embassy, said that one of his assistants is a member of this, what is called the Radha Swamis, who are from this St. Marte uh, lineage. So they, the, his assistant and her husband came to see me, in New Delhi, and uh, so I gave me several books on the Radha Swamis, and this what interested me was that their whole practice is around the sound of silence, and that's their whole that's their that's their their main message. So it's quite interesting, and you read they quote in the books from Guru Nanak, who is the the. Uh, Guru of the of the Sikhs, and also from Kabir, and and various other Sufi poets, and, and uh, just this, uh, in, and of course they use word, uh, English word word and shabd, and uh, but they're always referring to this this uh, sound of silence as a practice. So that was interesting for me, since I've always found that very helpful way of practicing and then went to uh and uh, I wasn't quite sure I didn't write ahead of time and, uh, and not carrying money or anything I didn't, I was a bit timid, you know, just to drop in and say here I am and you have to feed me so I, I was uh, you know didn't know what to expect but fortunately, Sandam phoned beforehand, and by the time we arrived, about 50 kilometers from Dehradun, uh the Swami comes out and greets me. and the, He says, the, this ashram is yours, and then the, you get the red carpet treatment. <laughs> and uh, it was a very nice place. I was quite impressed. And uh, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't you know, Speak so as he writes notes, so on the next day, he insisted we stay. Uh, we weren't planning to stay overnight, but he insisted, so Jentu and I stayed overnight, and he wanted a questions and answers period in the, the next morning, so and I heard he likes to give Buddhists a bit of a hard time around God and conceptions like that, so so. The first question he asked me, he was asking the questions. Uh, Swamiji called me. Wha- uh, who created all the heavens and the earth and the animals and the trees and the mountains and the liver and the kidneys and the blood vessels? It <laughs> <laughs> went on. It's quite a long question in the, the whole list. So who created all this? And so I said, God. <laughs> well, it was a perfect answer. <laughs> and he didn't pursue it any further. And <laughs> but anyway, the next day, we went back to Derudun and, and went to Rishikesh, where we uh, visit the very famous holy place, where there's so many ashrams there, and all kinds of Western people studying yoga, and and uh, so so many sadhus, and the place is chock a block with with holy men in caves and all over the place, and uh, and then eventually we, we had we were away for about a week, and then returned to Delhi. Then I came back here, so that was my journey. So in the six months I was away, it was um, interesting and uh, inspiring. It, I think it confirmed my own insights very much and uh, just being around these these ashrams or these places and my own experience of India, uh, being able to to connect with India, not you know, in a in a direct way, rather than just uh, in a sentimental way, or or through just comparing it, you know, because some people find India quite challenging because it's so different, and many people have culture shock there; they, it's, it overwhelms them. But um, this 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 did not happen to me, but because mainly. There's a mindfulness practice this sense of of being fully with the present and being able to respond to situations that that y- are unpredictable when you get outside a monastery uh then you're thrown into situations you're out that are beyond your control you know so where are you going to eat how it's going to happen how are you're going to do this and that uh you know you have I- it's it's a uh, it's beyond one's control. Here at Amravati, we've got all nicely under control. <laughs> we know what to do. But when you're you're not in the monastery, then you're, and you're not even in a Buddhist country, you're in a, you're or you're even in Hindu ashram. But then the the awareness it connects you to the moment, so you you're with the moment, and and so all things can take place in that moment. So many. Good things happen, uh, miracles happen, um, seeming strange coincidences or gifts from God or whatever, however you want to see them. In fact, during that time, I don't, I, I hardly had. I have hardly any memories of, of uh, other than the malaria that are unpleasant. So I've t- taken up a lot of time here. <laughs> uh, I'm glad to be back. Uh, I'm certainly uh, find. Uh, I'm very happy here and uh, very grateful to be back here. We have a very excellent situation, actually, here at Amaravati. <laughs> uh, it's easy to take it for granted if you're here all the time. <coughs> but uh, it is, it's, it's uh, probably as good as you'll get on this planet. <laughs> But sometimes it's good to see something else just so you this <laughs> so you can't believe you have to see for yourself. But remember the that, that uh it's the holy life that we're living and uh the um, the goodness that generates from this life mm. generates goodness wherever we go. So it's uh you know, if if one isn't angry and full of uh, resentment and fear and negative emotions, then one seems you know wherever you go, you see you, you don't generate that in others. Generally, if I you know find people you, know, they respond to you in a different way. If I'm if I'm going around looking angry and hating these people and criticizing everything, then that seems to generate uh, a reaction of negativity from others. But uh, if one is open with love and, and receptivity, then that seems to have, have, you know, a good effect on the people around, even if they're total strangers. So no, just by going and slaughtering all the forces of evil and uh, acts of evil and trying to w- uh, have a war on terrorism and kill all the terrorists and the suicide bombers and the... <laughs> this is not the way, is it? It's, it's you know, just creating more negativity. As you can see in... in uh, Palestine, you know the endless conflicts between the Israelis and the Palestinians, the more the Israelis try to control and using power to beat down the Palestinians, and the more they they do the, the other terrorist acts. So is this is you know the end of the day, you know you have to just destroy the whole thing in order to win because you you know, you kill everything off. Then, but the karma of killing everything off is so bad that I would hate to think what, it's not going to bring peace to Israel if, if they do that. So in terms of wisdom, wisdom, developing wisdom in our lives, it's very much in this sense of seeing things as they are and and knowing in your own in your own mind when you 're really with yourself watching how your mind works if you 're just using negative mental states or repressive practices or uh, you know critical mind towards yourself or towards others. If you're just getting caught up in these negative states, then what? what is the result? It just, you know, one becomes miserable, unhappy, depressed, angry, upset, continuously. And we can create those conditions. I can, anyway. I can make myself very angry just by thinking of all the terrible things that happen in this world. How unfair and unjust and unreasonable and that I can get quite indignant. Then, uh, then the, the power of positive thinking at least generates uh, uh, that that kind of, of response to the conditioned realm. Then the liberation is through the awareness, non-attachment either to the to positive or negative. So that's that's the 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 uh, realization of nibbana, the reality of non-attachment is uh, to recognize the deathless, to realize it. It's real now. It's not not uh, cr- you don't create it, and it's it's not something separate. But it's so close, so real, so. Present, we don't. We can easily overlook it. As soon as you conceive it, you know the deathless, or the unconditioned, or God, or Nirvana. As soon as you conceive it, it's it's separate again, isn't it? It's, if you're, you, know, you you know you, you this very conception is is a divisive experience. So letting go of even the concept. To to enter that emptiness, that stillness within, Mm -hmm. where, where words, before the words arise, realize it, recognizing that, and trusting it. So, that's all I will say for this evening.